episode 167 for June 15th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hasenblum. And I'm Pam Bedour. And we are in, boy, it's June 15th. It's summer. I mean, uh, okay, fine. It's not meteorologically summer yet until next week, but oh my goodness, it is summer here in Chicagoland. How about you guys on the East Coast? We had a couple days of heat wave, but now it's much more moderate. It's beautiful. We got, we got, uh, I had the most amazing rain shower just a couple days ago. It was like the whole world just uh, dropped all their water on us. Um, but soon after, it's, it's sunny and beautiful. It's everything you want it to be. As we know, weather is not the same as climate. We are analyzing the climate and not the weather, but boy, the weather has been so hot here in Chicago. And every time it's a little bit hot, I think, boy, I wonder what this climate disaster might look like. Does that occur to you, Pam? (laughs) It occurs to me all the time. And I guess, I mean, if you guys have been having a bit of a heat wave in Chicago, I mean, we had a couple of days, and I have to say, it really impacts your mood, it impacts productivity. For me, it impacts like creativity and the ability to focus, just the heat. And to think about, you know, a two degree change that seems so small, but is really so enormous. I don't know. It's tough. I mean, how did you find it having several days in a row of over 90 degree weather? It has been daunting, to yeah. say the least. You know, I, I, I live with breathing problems. I, I don't go outside very often. And the last few weeks, I have been spending more time in the basement than usual because it is a challenge to survive in this climate, in this weather, with all of these elements. And the rain, we haven't had rain for for quite a few days. We had a little four-minute rain shower yesterday, and everybody that we were with at the time went, wow, this feels really good because we haven't had it for so long. And I'm the total opposite of this because it's been beautiful, and I've loved it. I don't mind... um... Muggy weather. I don't mind humidity. I don't mind the heat. I grew up in it. It's it's beautiful. Thank God for air conditioning. Thank God for air conditioning. Absolutely. That brings us to these chapters of how to avoid a climate disaster by Bill Gates this week, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. So what did you guys think? This is our week three of four. So we're kind of in the middle of the book. What did you guys think of these three chapters that we were reading for this week? In general, this this is a these are supporting arguments for uh-huh. his initial um, uh, what he, he planned for this this book. These three chapters I found to be weaker arguments. If you're going to challenge some of his assumptions, you're going to challenge them in probably these areas. Um, but I do think that they'll lead up to what what ultimately he's going to do is probably his policy uh, goals. What were the things that you thought were a little less strong chip. I'm curious here because I, I felt the exact same way. So so ultimately where I think this is going to go is there's going to be a goal to create some policy. And that that is what Gates is, it was, it was setting out to do when he set up this. The, the first policy is that we're going to have to create a national initiative that is on the, the, um, the ambitious level of the space race. Where John F. Kennedy mm-hmm. said, he goes, well, you know, we don't do these things because they're easy. We do these things because they're hard. And we're going to, to land a person on the moon within the, by the end of the decade. And we have the space race. And that type of initiative in the United States could be, hey, listen, we need to create a national grid or at least a statewide grid that's easy to connect to all the other states. And we need to do this because, I mean, ultimately, we're going to need to find a place to put, say, nuclear reactors, other nuclear plants to create our energy. We need a way to to put those in places that are not next to our cities is usually what we would would come down to. And then the other part about that is once we uh, set that up, we need to find a way to help developing areas use modern technology to create their grids, too. And the reason is, is because when we stop using fossil fuels like we're using fossil fuels, there's going to be a few things that are going on. Cheap fuel or cheap oil will dump on the market. Oil is already cheap, 
But if I'm a developing area, I'm going to need to be able to match what all the other developing areas of the world, because he's correct. Having uh, air conditioning in the United States is lovely, but you know, to bring it to an area that is hot and, and not um, comfortable in a developing area is also wonderful. And why should they be denied to have modern conveniences too? And then once that happens, what do you do with these areas that are dependent upon uh, producing oil? And you can immediately think of Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, what, what happens when the demand for their one product in their desert is not available? These, these could create some real defense challenges and, and a number of other things. So, so I think that thinking about things on a local level and then a global level certainly is a very ambitious task that's going to, that's going to come from this book, at least what he's proposing. And I, I think this is a, a reasonable uh, approach to looking at the future. And remember, 2050 is the, the year that this all needs to be kind of set up and running. And so there's a time frame for us. Yeah, and I really like Bill Gates's notion of the green premiums and trying to figure out how you align like moral imperatives with economic imperatives. And obviously the need to think globally is something that we all know, but he does a really nice job of like setting that up. I love your note about Saudi Arabia and countries of that sort who do depend so much on oil. Um, I'm not sure that that's something he talked about as much, but I really love that you bring that up, Chip. It seems like a super important point. And I think in the first chapter of these three that we read for this week is about transportation. And he begins that chapter by saying that transportation accounts for only 16% of greenhouse gases which puts it forth behind how we make things, plugging in, and how we grow things. And when he said that, I was like, huh, that is really quite a surprise. He then noted that, of course, it's number one in the U.S. He also noted a little bit later on that building all of our transportation stuff, <laughs> cars and airplanes and trucks and everything, he had put that under the making things part. I was like, okay, like that's why this number is so low because the transportation grid is obviously a huge part of our emissions. And it is, it's actually putting it forth as a, I think a little bit, I don't want to say deceptive because it wasn't like he's trying to deceive anyone, but it, it puts it a little bit lower down than it is. So I think he did a very nice job of pulling us through a lot of the challenges, the challenges of how heavy batteries are, of many, many challenges. And then he talks about how do we really cut down on our transportation emissions? And one of the suggestions is just less driving. And he doesn't talk about that one too much because he's much more into more efficient manufacturing, using fuels more efficiently, switching to EV, different alternative fuels, et cetera. But I guess I did wonder, like, one of the messages of this book seems to be, we don't really need to change our lifestyles, we can just change our technology. And I love that idea, but I don't know if I believe it. I, I don't believe it either. That's why I think it's one of the weaker arguments. I think we, we have, I'm, I'm in North Carolina right now. And North Carolina is different than many states because we spread our population. It's like one big suburb. In many ways, from Charlotte. Connecticut is similar. Yeah. And yeah. so we've designed our cities to be driving cities. And yeah. where it impacts, and if you're an older person who um, is losing their ability to drive, how do you get to a grocery store? Mm -hmm. I mean, Uber is basically what it's going to be. But that Uber is still driving. So you can't, you, we, we're designing all these neighborhoods um, so that you can have your little postage stamp. But really, nothing is walkable mm -hmm. and um the schools that we're creating especially out in the area where, where steve is you know we went from one that was a community one that you kind of could walk to mm -hmm. to one that is out in the middle of an area that there are no walking paths there's no bike paths there's nothing to get to it the only way to get to that school is to drive and so i, I think that part of it is is trying to convince local communities as they're developing them how to develop an, a way of getting around that doesn't necessarily rely on 
automobiles. You can walk or you can, you can ride a bike or something of that nature. I think that this is an area that's ripe for exploration. And I think urban areas certainly can get renewal from this because there may be a desire. The pandemic showed the weakness going down a tube of elevators, but there, there could be a desire to work in an area that, that does not require you to drive everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that urban lifestyle is something that I've, I've never lived in a big city. I've never lived in an area where, well, I'll take that back. I take that back. I haven't lived in an urban area since college. My college experience was very much that very small village of community. I had the grocery store across the street. I had the video store. Remember video stores? That that was right there. I had everything that I needed right in my walking area. I did not need to own a car in order to be in that college experience. Now, that college experience is clearly very different from our normal, quote-unquote, normal day-to-day lifestyle. But there's something to be said for I didn't need to take an automobile to get to everything that I needed each day. And that would be a big shift in our living conditions. And, and again, Bill Gates is really trying to tell us that we don't need to change our lifestyle in order to change the climate. And boy, I, I agree with both of you. I don't think that that is a viable uh, way of thinking about this. Well, in urban areas, certainly if you have less driving, you could create um, that many of those streets could become pedestrian again. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could think about that. So now we've got different walking. That means you don't have to maintain those areas either. Mm-hmm. And that means you don't have to necessarily have all that concrete again. So there's, there's a lot of um, benefits of that. And it could be, you know... I, I, and I'm, I'm, this is not mentioned in the book at all, but just just strictly thinking about, you know, it could be by, you know, I'm throwing a number out, by 2035, city of Chicago says, hey, listen, there's no more gas-powered vehicles that are going to be able to drive in our city. You're going to have to park them outside, and you can take our transportation in, or you can rent a, you know, itty-bitty egg that's electric or whatever it is, however you want to do it, and you know, who would be allowed to have gas-powered trucks? Well, maybe trucks would to be able to deliver to grocery stores or something like that. That would be our um, caveat. But anyway, you could create, you could create strategies of kind of reducing that. And Chip, that was the Kim Stanley Robinson model, right? Like that was exactly what's happening in the Ministry for the Future is in that book, in that novel, fictional novel, you know, people agree to create these new kinds of cities with exactly that kind of infrastructure. So it's kind of, it has been fun to read these two books next to each other. And I love that connection to the space race, which brings us to our middle book in this trio. These are really different visions and it's, it's hard. I don't know. It's hard to figure out where we're going. One of the things I thought that Gates did that was super interesting. He mentions little things that make you think, Oh, wait, should we be doing that? And then zoop, keeps moving. So he noted that the last time that the U.S. raised the gas tax was 1993. Now, as a Canadian living in the U.S. who in the past, in the before times, used to regularly cross the border, the price of gas in the U.S. and Canada is radically different. Like gas is almost twice as much in Canada. And that's because of gas taxes. Canadians are super committed to high gas taxes and very comfortable with that as an incentive to, again, change the green premiums. So I thought it was really interesting. It's been almost 30 years since the U.S. raised its gas tax. Do you think that's something that the U.S. could do? Would people stand for it? I don't really know. So gas taxes are state-run, right, or municipality-run. So they're not necessarily on – there could be a national oh, gas was, tax. There's, oh, there's was gas inaccurate on this? No, no. Well, I, I'm just suggesting that – you know, I, when I lived in Washington, D.C. area, gas was very expensive there, relatively, relative to other areas. When I go down to the beach here in North Carolina, where the, basically the, the fuel comes right off the tanker and comes into it, it's a lot less expensive. Mm. Um, and so the way, I want you to think like a politician. So, you know, we're, we're, uh, it's a couple, it's a year ago under Trump, 
and gas is relatively very, very inexpensive. The time to raise gas taxes, we're going to raise it, is right then. Mm-hmm. As all of a sudden, another quarter goes on there and your, I don't know, $2 becomes two twenty-five. Mm-hmm. The challenge is, is when fuel starts moving up and it's four bucks a gallon and you're going to, you're going to come to them with another quarter or whatever that number is um, per gallon. Then it becomes, I mean, you're, you're starting to, to put people, I mean, fuel impacts so many parts of our economy mm-hmm. and can devastate families. See, Bill Gates doesn't care if he pays an extra 10 bucks a gallon because it's not going to hit his bottom line. But for a, um, you know, a, a family making the, you know, the median income or less, um, this could be devastating to them. This could be devastating to their budget. He did lay that out, I thought. He, he did lay that out nicely. Okay. Um, he actually said, like, this is how much it would be and per week and annually. And, and we also have to recognize that if you're in California and you're used to paying California prices for things, and you're in Kansas and you're used to paying Kansas prices for things, these are two different ways of, of thinking about two things, too. I mean, this is, most of us are not in San Francisco where our itty-bitty home is now worth $1.5 million. You know, many of us are in communities where the, the homes could be two twenty-five dollars or, or less. The idea of the green premium comes in here where, where yes, California has put emphasis on we don't want certain things to happen, so we're going to tax those certain things. And every area has their list of things that they really don't want you to do and trying to get you to change your lifestyle through those taxes the idea of the green premium on the electric car here is one of the parts that bill gates is is laying out for us for the current average green premium in the united states on an electric car is 10 cents more per mile than the average gasoline powered car so if you drive 12,000 miles a year that's an annual $1,200 extra to drive that electric vehicle versus the gas-powered vehicle. But when gas prices are higher, then that green premium is virtually zero. So it's a, it's a matter of where you live and how much the gasoline costs versus the cost of generating the electricity. And, and this is where the challenges come in. And a, an immediate challenge to this is most of us who drive a lot um, don't want to sit down and wait for 30 to 45 minutes so your car can recharge where they can stop and, uh, you know, get your gas in just a couple minutes and move, move forward. So this could be solved. Certainly technology allows things like this to be solved. But that, that charge is um, time is also a, a premium. You can't get that back either. So. And, and I love how he lays out the idea of that in this chapter is it, the batteries that we have might very well be the best battery technology we will ever have. People have been working on battery technology for so long and the lithium based batteries that we have currently might very well be the best thing we can ever invent for storing electricity. That, that we might be stuck in that technology for a very long time. The cost of the energy in a gallon of gasoline is so much easier right now. It's so much cheaper right now. And can we get past that to the more difficult effort in order to help save the climate crisis? All right, so this is where your question. imagination, your imagination kind of comes into play because one of the real challenges with electric vehicles is because of how they charge up, they, they, they don't necessarily pay um, taxes like you would on a, a gallon of fuel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if you're going to redesign your gridway, why don't you redesign it so that you're charging as you're moving? So, you know, as you're, you drive over some area, like I'm going down the highway or going down the street, it's constantly recharging my battery. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so solar, at that point, with you can charge per mile. Mm-hmm. You can charge agree. per mile. You can charge per drive. Whatever you wanted to do, and so that idea of being able to solve 
the charging issue and also collect the maintenance fee for the roadways and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that could be a, like a design issue. I agree. I, I think the solar road idea, the charging your electric vehicle as you pass over this road that is creating this energy, like a bumper car having the pole on the top and the and the contact to the bottom charging the electric motor is a great idea. I think bumper cars would be phenomenal. <laughs> that would make a lot more fun during... Uh, during rush hour wouldn't it during those long commutes <laughs> oh. Lovely. oh you got me pam <laughs> back up and try again that's right <laughs> now well as we moved from transportation to heating and cooling which is obviously a big issue for some of us right now um what did you guys i thought there were quite a few interesting things in the analysis of air conditioning his opening his opening statement where he praised malaria like he he is the anti-malaria guy he is the guy that is going around the world trying to eliminate malaria and he comes out in this first paragraph and says i i'm going to go ahead and praise this deadly disease because it is directly responsible for the invention of air conditioning. The idea of malaria, and I didn't know this until he said it in the book. Me neither. Mal air, bad air. They called this disease malaria because they really believed that it was coming from the air. And so they invented air conditioning to try to solve malaria. That's amazing to me. And, and think about what it did for the United States, particularly the warm southern parts of the United States, southwest and southeast. All of a sudden, these hot summers, or the reason why someone would want to live in the northeast or the Midwest, changes. You know, you can come down to an area that the climate may be warm, but it's milder with air conditioning and the ability to, to well, enjoy the sunshine, uh, enjoy the beaches, enjoy all those other areas, increases. And for us nerds, air conditioning really made computer processing happen. The, without air conditioning, the advancements in technology would not have happened. We would not have Zoom to talk to each other across the country without air conditioning. Think about that. All, all of Alaska would be just a one server farm, right? It'd be... <laughs> now i also thought it was interesting that air conditioning needs are expected to triple by 2050 which is not that far away partly because poor countries are just coming online with air conditioning and when you add that two degrees celsius uh hotter temperature you're just everyone's going to be using air conditioning much much more and so this is an area that's absolutely huge to keep an eye on even though heating and cooling is fifth in the big list of how much how many emissions it creates it's still a very very big one and imagining it tripling tripling triple as the heat increases with climate change and as so many other countries get this technology that we we want them to have to survive tripling by 2050 is is enormous and i find it interesting because as you guys know i'm from canada and um really my parents don't have air conditioning they both live in fairly um you know moderate places that <laughs> listen to me they're not moderate at all they live in <laughs> old places let's be more honest than that but the summers are quite moderate so you know hopefully if the border opens and i go visit my mom in matan quebec we're going to visit hopefully in late july and we will bring hoodies because it will get cold enough in in the evening in july that you would need to wear a hoodie to go outside so they have never had air conditioning never really thought about it i grew up without air conditioning i never But now, like, I've been talking to my parents and they're looking, they can't even believe it, but they've been having, they've been getting 90 degree days. And they're like, maybe we need to do it. It used to be one or two or maybe three days of the year. Now it's a few weeks. At what point do you make that shift? And I 
would have never dreamed that either of my parents would have mm-hmm. that ill air of air conditioning that I've always heard negative things about my whole life. They might actually be doing it. My mother-in-law got air conditioning in her house this summer as well. Oh, interesting. Okay. Something yeah. that she yeah. had never had right. before. And and yeah. she just got to an age where she was not willing to put up with it any longer. And so right. she had a, a system put into her home. But she had a heat pump installed instead of a traditional air conditioning unit. So can I make a really embarrassing true confession? When Gates says, why are heat pumps only in 11% of American homes? I was like, I don't even really, I've never even really heard of a heat pump. <laughs> like it's just not something that I particularly know anything about. And he laid it out so well that yeah. this is what your refrigerator is. Mm-hmm. It is the idea of removing heat from one area and pumping it into another. And you can use it one way or the other. You can either make it really cold by removing the heat from that area or take the heat from somewhere else and put it into where you want it to warm up your lifestyle. The idea of the heat pump certainly is a revolution that has been waiting to happen for a very long time. Like you said, only 11% of American homes use the heat pump system instead of what we think of as as traditional heating and cooling systems. But right now, I think it's, it's time to really take a look at how that system could change our heating and cooling in our homes. Uh, the, the switch between electricity for this heat pump versus what we have traditionally used as natural gas for heating and Freon and all of the attempts at other uh, chemistry for the cooling is is really uh, 2020 might be the year to do it. Oh, wait, it's 2021 already. We skipped 2020. (laughs) But no, I will admit that as I was reading this chapter and I was thinking like I recently moved to a new home, first time I've ever lived in a single family home um, since childhood. And I've been like, oh my goodness, like, because I've always lived in apartments or condos where someone else makes the decisions about heating, cooling. I'm like, okay, I need to do some research here. Like, this is something that I should really be looking into. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that Chicago was specifically mentioned yes. <laughs> as one of the locations in the world where natural gas is so much cheaper than the current heat pump situation that my lifestyle might not change very quickly with a heat pump because my furnace is 15 years old and there's a there's a definitely a chance that it will be functional for the next five years, right? Right, right, mm-hmm. right, fate. My, my furnace will be fine for five more years. But within a reasonable amount of time, within the next 10 years, there's a very good chance that that unit will cease to function. And at that point, I will have to make a decision about how I'm going to go forward. A heat pump makes the most sense in terms of the climate. It makes the most sense maybe in terms of my pocketbook. But because I live in a natural gas area like Chicago, where we we have very inexpensive natural gas, maybe it's not the most financially viable solution. Right. Which brings us actually to a point that Gates makes multiple times, but very quickly which is that we need to change government policies on these things, right? That if there are incentives to actually get more than 11% of American homes with heat pumps, then it will happen. So we need to change the policies. We need to make it a negative green premium to, to have cleaner energy. And I completely agree with him on that. He just mentions it super fast. Um, and I kind of imagine that in the last a few chapters he might go a bit deeper on that but i think it, it makes a lot of sense very logical well and, and on the grand scheme of things that's there's one of the real challenges i mean if you've ever tried to change building codes and things of that nature in a local area or changed anything through congress um yeah th- there's there's the real challenge trying to get this through every representative has their own agenda Mm-hmm. And I love that you said that, Chip, because you're saying like local or federal, and then we have to then go or global, because that is in fact the issue with the climate crisis is that it's a global crisis. So we know how hard it is to get things done at a local level, let alone 
nationally and then bam mm -hmm. internationally it's what, hard to imagine. it could be what many things end up happening california demands it because california <laughs> as a state demands it because it's such a large economy it just basically rifles its way through the rest of the states and because the rest of the states are such a large economy the prices come down so it becomes attractive to other parts of the world i mean that's how we may be able to get some of these policies through now, one of the things I found most interesting about these chapters were specifically the idea that, this is a quote, we can't let climate change undo progress that we're making in other areas. And it's funny because I feel like this was insightful for me because I always think of climate, the climate crisis as something that can sort of interact positively with all of the other problems in the world. And Gates, who works a, a lot with aid organizations, was like, some people in aid organizations are thinking of like taking funding away from vaccinations and putting that funding towards reducing emissions. And we absolutely must not do that. And that's the thing that I think is, to me, is most positive about this book is that notion of aligning our incentives. And I completely agree with that, that we, we have to, I mean, Things like, I mean, I agree with Gates on very much his priorities of the big, big health initiatives that the Gates Foundation has undertaken and health and education. And so I feel like it's super important to keep these things moving in the same direction. You can't take away from one to, to think about the other. We have amenities available to us and amenities being like grocery stores and things like that very nearby. Not every place in the world has what we have and not every community has the choices that we have. So we, we have to always recognize that for the most part, we're in a privileged position to make some of those changes where a family living on subsistence, they don't care. They, their first choice is get food on the table and get shelter. When I was in Washington DC and going to school, there were times where I would go out to West Virginia to see how the real people live because DC is a, is a fairyland compared to what the real families go through. And you, you cannot just force down policies on, on, on people who it's, this is as foreign to them as, as anything could be. They're just trying to make, you know, they're shopping at Dollar General for their groceries because that's what they have available and that's what they can afford. Thinking globally, worrying about the global peace has to fall on the rich people, the rich countries. It cannot fall on the poor people and the poor countries. And, and Bill Gates is, is saying that in this. This is definitely a part of his conversation. It The weird part is how often the technology has to be in the hands of those poor people in order for all of these interconnections to happen, to make all of the global things happen. One of the things that I found super interesting about CGIAR, which I kind of did appreciate that Gates was like, it looks too much like cigar. It's a terrible acronym. Um, this is a group that specifically creates innovations for farmers in developing areas. And it was so interesting as he was talking through the kind of innovations that, that the Gates Foundation and others have worked on, that so many of these innovations count on very poor people, subsistence farmership, as you were saying, who are very worried about nutrition, it counts on them having phones. And it's kind of funny to think that even 20 years ago, we would not have put telecommunications in that, like in the basic hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. Telecommunications just would have been at that, like those higher levels and Maslow's hierarchy. And today they're, they are in those basic needs. Especially in the pandemic. Yeah, but yeah. It, yes, you're totally right. Of course, the pandemic has, has made that even more relevant and apparent, but I think like we've been moving in this direction for a while. Mm -hmm. The idea of information as a basic need is something that has changed in our lifetimes. And that's kind of amazing. Right now in my American Utopian Dystopia class, 
we've just been reading a book from 1888 that looks 100 years in the future. And I always ask my students, okay, so 2021, let's look out 100 years in the future to 2121. What do you what do you predict and what can you imagine? And it's funny when we look back to 1920, there's that idea of information as a human right and a human need. It simply would have never occurred to anyone in right. 1920. And it's just amazing to think about like, what is it that is simply not occurring to you and me today that will exist a hundred years from now? And that's an impossible that, question, Professor. <laughs> professor, you can't ask that question on the quiz. We don't know what we don't know. <laughs> Exactly. The idea, in my opinion, I think that we are going to have to look to municipalities for the the utility of information. I think that mm -hmm. that is inevitable here, especially after this pandemic, especially looking at schools and how children get that information. We, as a society, need to provide that information. We've agreed upon that in the public school system, that we think the best thing is to give this information to these kids. And now I think that the natural progression is that we need to provide the method of getting that information in a new way. I think the public schools uh, will look a lot different in 2050 than they did in 2020. And not only accessing the information, but evaluating the information. Well, you're, you're also assuming that you're, you're not getting propaganda through that. You're assuming that the information is provided out there. And the idea of propaganda and using those tools to limit the type of information that a person re receives is also you know, one of the, the challenges of that. Because Soviets were very good at propaganda it depends upon how we receive the information. So we can think of Elon Musk internet? also. Hmm? So you're, you're an advocate for a free and open internet chip? Absolutely, I am. <laughs> and this there is exactly go. what I'm saying. So, 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 do the, so do the Chinese have a free and open internet, Steve? No, no, they do not. That's that's the point of the free and open internet is not knocking people down for saying things or thinking things or having uh, two weeks off of Facebook because they decided to uh, share their opinions. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Chip, I think you and I are saying the same things. It's not only about having access to information. It's about teaching kids how to evaluate information. And so this is a huge way that our education system will change. I'm teaching Ready Player One, which is really detailed on the matter of, you know, possible future of education. Um, so anyway, sorry, back to Gates. This is always, I love talking to you guys. It's always fascinating to think about all these things. So in the end of these chapters, he talks about like, how do we prepare? And he makes the argument, which I agree with, that we often are too focused on the short term and we don't think long term enough. And so he says there's really three big ways that we need to prepare for the climate crisis. We have to reduce the risks. That means climate proofing buildings, encouraging people to permanently relocate if they're in places that don't really make sense. Um, and we have to have- Did, did you say New Orleans? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Miami, <so> Florida. <laughs> thanks, thanks for bringing that up, Chip, because that's the thing, right? It's easy to say, we need to encourage people to relocate. And then we think about like- a We rebuilt New Orleans. <laughs> a city that we love. Is illogical. rebuilding that city. Oh, I know. This is, it's hard, right? It's very, mm -hmm. very, very hard. And then he talks about responding to emergencies. So having better weather prediction and more prepared first responders. And then recovering from storms. And this is, again, this is another element of this. So planning services for people who've been displaced, but also being able to say you can't return to the space that was just destroyed. So as a person who spends many weekends on the coast, yeah. The amount of building that's going on the coast is absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And while a hurricane may or may not come through this year, we know it will come eventually. And um, yeah, maybe once every 10 years, something could be pretty devastating. But you know, when you're removing the tree lines and stuff like that, because you need 
space for your buildings, mm -hmm. it certainly is going to create some different type of devastation. And uh, anyway, it's just, it's very interesting. One of the, the, the th things I, I think on this is, oh, say 25 years ago, there was a building that went up and it had condos and lots and lots of condos on an island, an island's moon. And within 10 years, that, um, that building would be underwater because of how, how um, islands move. So who's responsible for dredging out those areas to make sure that building doesn't go underwater? Well, that eventually falls under taxpayers. Is it fair to taxpayers to, to bail out a building that was designed and built on an area within 10 years would not be a piece of land? And those types of questions certainly could be um, something to think about. And something that Bill Gates certainly is is thinking about in this section. And, and the idea of how we fund investment in those things that we find important. And the idea of government policies that build in climate change adaptation is a part of, of what he's talking about in this section. And one of the things he says that I think is super important, but like everything with climate crisis, super hard, is he says we have to find a way to measure benefits in terms of bad things not happening, as well as in terms of good things happening. And this is such a huge, like, mental switch, right? And I just think, again, I am not in politics, and I would never want to be in politics, but, you know, how do you persuade people? And again, this goes to the Kim Stanley Robinson book. It goes to the Mary Robinette Kowal book. It's this idea. How do you stand up in front of people and say, not, hey, vote for me. I'm going to make something awesome happen. How do you stand up and say, vote for me. I'm going to prevent something awful from happening, but we're not even sure when it's going to happen. But honestly, I'm the person. It's very, very, very hard to do. But I agree, we need to have new ways of thinking that look at the, the actual, like, put a benefit on avoiding crisis rather than making great things happen. But I don't know how you do it. Sounds great, though. <laughs> <laughs> and and the morality of all of that and the, the economic piece of all that prepping for climate change and how do we align all of those pieces to make that happen? It's challenging. Now, Stephen, did you want to say something about mangroves? <laughs> because there's only, there's like, only one thing. Mangroves can be part of the answer. Mangroves. <laughs> okay, so you know how, how silly I am. And, and he's got this whole part about mangroves. And he's like, oh, we need mangroves. And mangroves are wonderful. And I'm like, what the heck is a mangrove? The only thing I know about mangroves is Monty Python, where... <laughs> There's, there's an interview show in the Monty Python sketch where the man has a giant, enormous nose strapped to his face, and he's being very silly, and he, the, the announcer announces him as Raymond Luxury Yatched. And he goes, no, 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 it's spelled Raymond Luxury Yatched, but it's pronounced Throat Wobbler Mangrove. <laughs> That's the only thing I know about mangroves. Tell me about mangroves, please. I didn't know anything about mangroves <laughs> either. A very helpful tree is what I learned. It, it's a water plant. It's, it's a very helpful tree that can be grown on water so that we can have more trees. Because deforestation is a big part of this conversation. The idea of all the wildfires in California, the constant wildfires that we've had the last, what, 20 years? Yeah. That has been devastating to those areas. And planting more trees is important. And mangroves might be the solution because mangroves can be planted on the water as opposed to on the land. So we're not taking up land space. We have these trees and the land. That's, that's his point on mangroves. And, and they're kind of, um, they're very interesting trees. When you, there's a forest, uh, a state park that I walk through, where you can walk through these, these areas. They filter the, the waters that come through. Uh, many of them are in brackish water. Um, 
and they just uh, because of the wind kind of moves them and, and shapes them you know they'll have leaves on one side and not on the other they're, they're just they're, they're just a real picturesque type of area that that certainly has a spooky feeling at times it's it, it, yes they they there's a lot of fun stuff that that um that comes from these areas but they also are preventing you from having your you know prime luxury space when you plant your home there so the idea you know there's always this fight over whether you use vegetation that holds the land together or you basically take it away to build your fancy house or whatever it is fine bill gates made a good point it's not all about monty python <laughs> and a lot of those by the way a lot of those plants are planted on the side of the highways in the in midwest and in northeast because not, not these trees but the grasses and stuff because they're salt tolerant and so when you guys mm. splash your salts and stuff like that to clean your roads during the winter time these plants can survive we cold weather people is that what you're saying <laughs> yes yes the cold water areas although i did learn that north carolina does have some snow uh take uh, equipment to take things away i think it's in the mountains areas but i'll just throw that out there oh yes thank you for that okay so as we reach the end of this section i did sort of hesitate right at the end of these chapters when he's like oh by the way let's not forget about geoengineering it's very challenging, but super interesting. We could like dim the sun, brighten the clouds. We could do these gigantic, totally untested things to the earth in order to try to lower the temperature. And he says, of course, it's very challenging because critics will say this is a massive experiment that you can't come back from if it doesn't work. And also you need global cooperation. But it kind of sounded like he was for these big geoengineering projects, which I think are very scary to people. I, I think that he didn't, he didn't go into the psychology of it and not saying that he should have, but I think for most of us, we're more afraid of a sudden disaster than we are of sort of like creeping disaster. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the boiling so, water and the frogs, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's that yeah, feeling. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Well, and, and I, you can immediately in the United States, th think of an area that you could you could test stuff out like, yeah, you know, maybe out in Arizona or Nevada or some area that there's just not a lot of population out there. And what if we could create a way to change that environment? So the Sahara Desert, good example of areas, big desert areas. But it's the air, it's the climate, that's that's the issue. It's not the land as much as it's the air that is the thing that needs to be changed. And it's not very easy to wall off the Sahara Desert and put a dome over it. Oh, that's a Stephen King book that you should read, Pam, by the way. I've Under read the it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Under <That's>, the dome. <laughs> that's, uh, boy, that's some psychology it of is. how boy how to work together as a community and when you have a problem how to solve it the stephen king idea there we, you... we 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 already do part of that we've moved a um river's water to california to grow food in the desert mm -hmm. i mean california in many ways <laughs> is an example of how man has just used nature so the, the idea of, of, of using technology or thoughts on, on, to try to do something is certainly reasonable. Mm -hmm. That's, remember the Kim Stanley Robinson where India changed the makeup of the air and the rest of the world said, wait a minute, should we be doing this? And they went, yeah, we're doing this. And and maybe the world reaped the benefit. But yeah, it's a massive experiment that you can't come back from. That's a little frightening for well, sure. If, if we had a, a business in China and we're pumping out a ton of, uh, for my example, pollution, and it lands in Denver, Colorado, you know, who's responsible for cleaning that up? Mm-hmm. Okay, so is is it the people of Colorado or the people of China? And the answer, it doesn't matter who's responsible for cleaning it up. Either party could clean it up. But so, but so when you have stuff like this, I mean, you can test. We've got land to, to try stuff. 
Could you create a rainforest out in the desert? Maybe. Boy, how much energy would you expend for that experiment? And would that energy be better used in other ways? That's the, the big question of this book, isn't it? I don't know. I, we have engineering schools and we, we put my, all money in all sorts of fanciful things. All right. So so we can try some things. We can we can work together on all sorts of these big projects and at the same time we can work on our individual level as Americans, as Americans who are individuals who need to make sure that we get it done, get her done on on an individual level and we can work towards our our massive global goals. That's I think that's basic what he's what he's trying to say in this book. I'm looking forward to seeing what the last three chapters yeah, look I, I, like. You've speculated a couple of times now on t as to what you would do if you were writing this argument. The, the beginning of it being, here's the layout of the land, and then the ending being the, here's the action. Here's what we need to do. And this middle section here with all the data was fine, but it was just the middle section. I look, I agree. I look forward to seeing uh, how he's going to wrap this one up. What's our assignment for next week, Chip? Chapters 10 through 12, and then basically anything that finishes the book. So I think you'll be able to enjoy it and, and uh, we'll be able to get to what some policy recommendations will be. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Pam. We can come back next week, guys. <laughs> How about you? What are you thinking? How are you doing? We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our email is sandwichesatirregularhours at gmail.com. Our website is sandwichesatirregularhours.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassenblatt. And I'm Pam Fedor. We'll see you in the future. What I wanna talk about is what I wanna thank you for. What I wanna thank.